Uh, we, we are, again, in the third week of Advent, and um, this, uh, this is the week that we light the pink candle. The pink candle is supposed to represent joy, and uh, every time we get to this week, the third week in Advent, I think, who, who set this whole thing up and decided this is the joy week? Because every time we have the joy week, we also have uh, someone like John the Baptist uh, giving a teaching that's got a lot of stuff about unquenchable fires and burning and judgment and that kind of stuff. It just doesn't necessarily feel real joyful on the front end. So I acknowledge that. Um, but I do think what we will talk about and read tonight is important for us to consider. Uh, we are in our second week in the desert with John the Baptist. You may remember last week, uh, if you weren't here, you can go back and, and listen to the podcast or catch the, uh, the video uh, recording on, on YouTube. Um, you may remember that we talked last week about uh, why we go to the desert, what it means for us and why it's important for us to step outside of life as normal, life as the way we always live it, uh, in an attempt to stop um, the insanity of doing the same things over and over again and expecting different things to come out of it, right? So we talked about that, stopping that kind of insanity last week. Uh, and this week, uh, we'll talk less about about John and about the desert and more about what he specifically taught while he was out there in Luke. Um, as he gathered this crowd of people who were willing to go out into the desert to listen to this strange prophet with wild hair and, and eating honey and bugs and wearing camel skin uh, and saying uh, difficult things, uh, this, gathered that was obviously, this crowd gathered was obviously somewhat dissatisfied with life as normal, otherwise why would you go out there? So he gathers this crowd. They've come a ways to see him. They've made an effort to be there. And John uh, starts off his sermon much like I typically do uh, by calling his listeners mean names. And uh, this would be, in baseball, what we call brushing the batter back off the plate, uh, establishing your strike zone. You, you give him the high heat in towards the chin, uh, and you, let him, you wake him up, and you let him know uh, who's on the mound here, right? And this is what John is doing. And so what I want to do this week is honestly kind of break this up into three sections, just kind of walk through it and talk about it and try and lay it out in the context of who John is and where this story is going. And I think there's something here for us uh, tonight. And I know there was for me as I studied it this week. So let's look at uh, verses 7 through 9 first. So this is Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 9 to begin with, and then we'll finish all the way through 17 in a bit. Verse 7, John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So these are the people that made an effort to come out and be baptized. These are his fans, uh, and this is what he starts off with. The brood of vipers is the idea that like a, the ba baby snakes would all kind of stay gathered together to say, stay safe. But if danger came, if like, you know, a fire came the way or something, they just kind of all scattered throughout the grass. And this is the, the image that he is using here. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. And repentance is the big word we're going to focus on tonight. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, Merry Christmas, right? But we're not at Christmas yet. We're in Advent. We're in the desert still. And so John starts with the bad news, the idea of like judgment coming, right? And, uh, and, and challenges the idea of having confidence in the wrong things, right? 
Because whenever we feel like things might be going bad in the world, when uh, you can think about the last couple of years when, when COVID begins to spread around, you begin to hear stories about what's happening and how scared we should be. And, and we all kind of freaked out a little bit and we started taking precautions. But deep down, most of us told ourselves a very specific story. And it's the story that we all tend to tell ourselves whenever things seem to be going wrong with the world. And that story is, yeah, but not me. Right? I mean, it can't, can't be for me. Because deep down, we know we're special, right? We're different. Things may get bad for everyone else, and, and they may actually get sick or something may happen to them, but deep down, we don't really think it's going to happen to us. And if it does, we're shocked, right? Because we all have this built into us. We believe something sets us apart because we're the hero of the story. Anyone who was paying attention would know that. So John starts by addressing that, that, uh, that tendency that all humans have, and particularly this group in this situation who's out there has. And he says to his audience, basically, you're not special. You don't get to dodge this. Don't say, yeah, but not me, just because your ancestors may have been the right people, just because you may be part of the quote-unquote chosen. Right? He even says that God could just as easily use a rock as them. Their family lineage, that's probably not you. I don't really think about it in my family lineage that way, but whatever that thing is that you think sets you apart from everyone else does not, in fact, make you different. That's not what matters, is what John says. It's probably good for all of us to hear. And then he goes on to say, what results, that, what results come from your life, the fruit of your life, is what's at stake here. That's what matters. What comes out of our lives? What do our lives produce? That's what matters. Not who you're related to, not whether you're part of the chosen people, not if you're the hero of the story. What comes out of your life? And so the crowds ask the next logical question. Verse 10, and the crowds asked, well, what then should we do, right? If, if all that matters is the fruit of our lives, what should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Verse 12, even tax collectors, it's nice to have that even right there if you're a tax collector, even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Verse 14, soldiers who asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. So the crowd asked the natural question, what do we do? When the crowds ask what they should do, John tells them not to hoard anything. If you have more clothing, more clothing or food than you need, then give to someone who doesn't have enough. It's the exact same lessons that the Israelites were taught in the desert generations before. Every morning there'll be manna on the ground. It's going to taste great. It's going to be there tomorrow morning. Don't take more than you need. I'll provide, right? Now you can take more than you need, but your tent's going to stank. It's going to be bad. And ultimately we're all going to know that you took more than you needed. So just don't do it, right? Don't hoard. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on this earth when moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Don't store up for yourselves manna on this earth that it's going to stink up your tent. Take what you need, 
not what you want. So he tells them the same lesson here, the crowd. Then the tax collectors, even the tax collectors, ask what they should do. John says, don't take more than you should. And this, of course, was the common practice for tax collectors. The reason why you wanted to become a tax collector is because a tax collector has you right where he wants you. He gets to establish the rate and you have to pay it. Right? This is not a good way. This is, this is the concession stand in a movie theater. You're stuck. Unless you can smuggle popcorn in, which I do, but if you are more moral than me and you buy the food there and don't sneak it in, you've got to pay whatever they want you to pay, right? They control all the factors. The whole reason you become a tax collector is because you can make more than you're going to have to pass on to the Romans. John says, don't take more than you should. Interesting to me that he doesn't say to quit, which is what, you know, good Jews don't really like tax collectors. They should just quit. They shouldn't be, you know, working with the empire like that. He doesn't say to quit, stop working for the evil government of Rome. He just tells them not to take advantage of the privilege they have in their job. They can get as much as they want, but just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? Don't take more than you should. And, and that may sound like, well, well, that's not that big a deal, but, but also think about if you took, uh, took John up on that, if you didn't take more than you should, what that means for the other tax collectors around you, right? That's, that's, uh, that upsets an entire system. That will not go unnoticed. In fact, you probably wouldn't last long in a job like that because other tax collectors wouldn't want you around anymore. Then the soldiers ask. Now, these are probably not... You might initially, when I read this, I think like Roman soldiers, since they were out there and they were kind of following John and looking to be baptized, chances are they weren't Roman soldiers. They were probably Jewish. And what that means is they were kind of mercenaries. There there were Jews that were hired by Rome to kind of perform soldiers' functions out there. So they were kind of traitorous as well. The soldiers ask, what should we do? John tells them, do not extort Don't abuse the authority you have over others. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. Be satisfied. Be content with what you have. Yes, you can grab for more. No, you shouldn't. It's not yours to grab, right? In other words, to each of these groups, he unpacks for them, he tells them within their context, bear fruit worthy of repentance. And this is what that looks like for the crowd. This is what it looks like for the soldier. This is what it looks like for the tax collector. Live in your particularities, the life that you have, the job you have, the context you have. In that particularly, live like a repentant person would. Now, let's stop for a moment on that word because I know if you grew up in church, there's a lot that comes with it. When we think repentance, we think about uh, someone walking down the aisle at the end of the service, maybe having a dramatic confession that all of us are shocked to hear but can't wait to hear. Uh, Maybe, uh, you know, they they have a good testimony because of it. That's what we think of in regards to repentance, and certainly that can be part of it and often is part of it. But I don't want us tonight to think about repentance as this act, as some kind of bold proclamation or confession I want us to think about repentance, um, not just as one act, but as a posture, as an orientation in the world, as the way we relate to God and ourselves and our neighbor. Repentance is an orientation. Writer Audrey West, as I was reading this week, said, quote, repentance is the actualization of the forgiveness already offered by God. God has offered us forgiveness when we accept that and really take it in and we actualize it, it results in a repentant life. 
Repentance is the actualization of the forgiveness already offered by God. It is what happens when we really internalize and uh, embody God's grace and God's mercy. Repentance helps us to let go of any assumed innocence, any assumed honor, any assumed privilege that we might have. Repentance is an embodiment of the recognition that I am a recipient of grace, that all of this is a gift undeserved from a gracious and benevolent God. I don't deserve any of this any more or any less than anyone else. So if I'm part of the crowd, their lack of clothing or their lack of food is no less important than mine and no more of a reflection on who they are than it is on me. So I have no more right to the money that's in someone else's pocket than they do, right? So the power that I have over this person based on my authority that has been given to me by someone, that power I have over them may make me feel superior, but that superiority is not real. And I should act accordingly. Living a life with fruits worthy of repentance. Repentance is a sober and humbled posture that naturally results from any encounter with God's grace. And according to John the Baptist, it's the minimum requirement for getting ready for the approaching Christ. It's the baseline preparation for the real thing which is coming. Remember, John is here just to prepare the way. Verse 15. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So according to John, This repentance, this humility is not the goal, it's not the end game, it's simply the preparation for what is to come. All this brood of vipers talk, this axe at the root, this repentance is the warm-up act. This is the water, the fire is coming, right? If you think this is a big deal, wait till you see what's next. If sharing a coat or some food is too tall of a hill to climb, if not extorting or stealing from others feels like a lot to ask, well, then you're in for a rude awakening. Why? Because Jesus is coming. You're in for a rude awakening. Why? Is Jesus angry, hellfire, brimstone kind of guy? No, of course not. It's much much worse than that. Jesus is going to take all this a lot further than John. Really what John asks the crowd of the soldiers of the tax collectors is basic human decency. This is not a real high bar. The things he asks for are not that lofty. But Jesus is coming, and Jesus is looking for love. And love is where it gets tough. Right? Repentance says to share one of your two coats Jesus tells you to give everything you're wearing to the person suing you in court. Repentance says give one of your two coats. Jesus tells you to end up naked in front of your enemy. Repentance says don't steal from anybody. 
then Jesus' cross-shaped love says to give your life for your enemy. To pick them up on the side of the road when they're bloodied and in need. To bind their wounds and to pay for their care. Repentance says don't use your power to abuse somebody. Jesus' love says turn the other cheek and let your enemy hit you twice if that's what it takes to short-circuit the cycle of hatred and retaliation that we have in this world. Repentance is just the starting gate. It is not the finish line. Repentance is just the start, but you can't get to where we are supposed to be going without it. It's only the beginning of where we are headed, but we don't get to skip it. It's only the beginning, and yet we don't even really have repentance for the most part, do we? The authentically humble posture that reflects an actual belief in God's grace and forgiveness. I don't know that we even have that most of the time. I don't know that I do. Christianity in general, I'm not sure. I don't think we do. I think we have churches that are often built on ego and hero worship and bravado and Fortune 500 principles of business. I think we have ministries a lot of times that exist for their own glory, or we have institutions that, when they make mistakes, will close up ranks and protect themselves against the very victims that they've created. We have Christians that trade in political grandstanding or in tribalism. Right, right now, if you ask the average person out there uh, in the world, currently Christians are known for being some of the least humble, most know-it-all power grabbers in our highly competitive cultural landscape. We are missing repentance. I am missing repentance. And I'm missing John the Baptist altogether, which means I am wholly unprepared for anything Jesus actually teaches, hence the reason we mostly ignore him too. Jesus is never interested in less than repentance, though he's always trying to move us beyond it. Jesus is looking for the life-altering love which is reflective of the manger, which is reflective of the servant's towel, which is reflective of the cross and the empty tomb. But we don't get to skip repentance and ever get there. So we should listen carefully to John. We should take note of the repentance he calls us to as preparation for the God that is to come. Because without humility and repentance as our backdrop, we will never get to be a part of painting the details of God's kingdom and God's cross-shaped love in this world. We simply aren't prepared to hear Jesus' teaching about nonviolence, charity, hospitality, enemy love, fill in the blank, without it. Without a posture of repentance, we will miss both the forgiveness and redemption intended for us. We will miss the water and the fire. We will never be prepared to receive the God of the universe who shows up in a manger. The one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of servant, being made in human likeness and becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Lots of people have missed him. So can we. John tells us to be ready to turn away from all these things we have built for ourselves in this world, to turn towards something bigger and better, to bear fruit worthy of a people well-versed in repentance. It is only then that we will be ready for the truly good news 
of a humble God incarnate. And the beautiful and disturbing truth that God truly is with us. Dependent, crying for his milk, lying in a manger, saving the world. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for uh, these direct and difficult words from John. The truth is we'd rather be religious. The truth is we'd rather talk about you than accept you. The truth is that it's easier to feel like we are special, that we are set apart, that our own uh, confessions or participation in church or in religion exempts us from the low and difficult path of repentance. So thank you for showing us, God, that we have to turn away from this world and what does not work before we can turn towards your love. May we hear John's call. May we remember our baptism. May we remember that you are a God of forgiveness and grace. May our lives be oriented around repentance. So that maybe, maybe then, we can begin to follow the teachings of your son. Maybe then we can embody that cross-shaped love in this world the love that this world so desperately needs to see. God, we do love you. 